We're continuing in the, our context of John chapter 7. We've read verses 25 through 31. This is another uh, quite a long chapter. There's two or three, four, maybe more quite long chapters in John. But I find this, uh, this gospel an amazing gospel to read. Um, different to the other three synoptic gospels, gospels but uh, such, a, such a, a wonderful gospel to read and one that, you know, when people ask, what shall I read in the Bible, who are inquiring, it's always a good idea to, to tell them to read the Gospel of John. So Jesus, as we've read already, has gone up to the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's gone up to this feast as discreetly as possible so as not to draw unnecessary attention to himself. He didn't want the glory of man. His desire, as he says oftentimes, even in John chapter 4, if you remember, when the disciples has gone to buy food and he's talking to uh, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, they come back with the food and he, he says, my food, I have other food that you don't know of. My food is to, to what? To do the will of the Father who sent me. That is his meat, to bring glory to his Father. He doesn't seek glory to himself. He brings glory to the Lord, uh, to his Father. And he also goes on to proclaim that the authorship of all that he teaches, <laughs> which is causing all those people that were around him and hearing it, that it's from his Father. He says, it's not my own, but it's his. It's God. I speak and I do what he tells me to speak and do. All of this is directed towards the Father. All glory goes to him, even through Jesus. He didn't, I mean, he received it. There were many times that people came and lay at his feet. If you remember, many times that he said that they worshipped him. He didn't rebuke them. He accepted it because he is God and he deserves the worship of his people. But he didn't, he didn't kind of glory in it, in his humanity. He deflected it and he said, this is what belongs to my father. He emphasizes that all the teaching and doctrine that brings glory to man is not true. And it has no authority. That's why we need to be careful by what we listen to, by what kind of sermons we watch. Because if we are found uh, engaging and listening and being taken in by people who are only bringing glory to themselves then we're listening to things that are wrong and they hold no power and they hold no authority. Only teaching that honours God and, uh, and honours the word, that has any authority. So our teaching must be biblical. That is an absolute. There is no movement on that. The teaching that comes from this church, from this pulpit, and listen, from everybody here, individually because whether or not we're actually our teachers we do teach one another and we do teach at times people that we speak to about the Lord and we need to make sure that what we preach what we teach is biblical and that we don't add and stretch and you know we can all do that at times I'm not saying it never happens but we need to make sure and take care that our preaching and our teaching is biblical it has to come directly from Scripture and preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, nothing, nothing happens 
without the power of the Holy Spirit attending the word of God. Our hearts are hard, our minds are dull and, and, and numb. Unless the Holy Spirit does something within us, whatever is preached is just a dead letter. It needs to be the power of the Holy Spirit. I do believe, as the scripture says, that the word will not return to him void. The scripture promises that, that it will accomplish all that for which it was sent. And I trust that that is what the Lord will do amongst us. So Paul is very clear when he speaks to Timothy and he tells him that he should be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This is what he says to Timothy, the young pastor at the time. But I believe that this is not only a scripture for pastors, but is a scripture for all believers. That we all need to be the people that present ourselves approved before God. That we, be, we become workers. That we're not ashamed when it comes to um, going to the Bible, when it comes to talking to people about the Lord. We may not all be uh, John Owens or Jonathan Edwards or people who are uh, amazingly intellectual and spiritually powerful uh, scholars who can explain things deeply. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't make every effort, and in prayer particularly, to understand the word of God. As again, as I always repeat, at the end of Luke chapter 24, Jesus said that he opened up their minds so that they might understand the scripture. He's speaking to them all. It was there. He opened up their mind. That's what we need. That's what I need. That's what you need. To have our minds opened that we might understand the word of God. So Jesus is the teacher of all teachers. He is the preacher of all preachers who rightly devised the word with utter precision, with absolute perfection and with utmost clarity. Of course, we know, don't we, that when you look at some of the parables that, you know, as I used to when I was younger, I used to believe that, God, that Jesus spoke in parables just to help those who were a little simple. But that's not right. He actually spoke in parables so that they wouldn't understand. So there is that to consider. Have a look at it yourself. See, there, are, there are many men who have an abundance of knowledge. They're able to communicate relatively well or very well. Even they are able to draw in and engage a crowd. But Jesus, none other has ever caused other people to be so amazed with his wisdom, with his understanding, with his eloquence, with the power and with the authority of speech than Jesus Christ. No one has engaged people like he did. He isn't merely a talented speaker. Jonathan Edwards, uh, sorry, not Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield was known to be an amazing orator. One in whom, a, a guy called uh, David Garrick, I think his name was, who was a, a, a thespian at the time, an actor. He said, if, if only I could say the word, oh, like George Whitfield, I would be an even greater actor. He just, he could speak so well. 
Uh, again, I think um, Charles Spurgeon was always known as a very good speaker. But he, Jesus Christ, is more than that. And these men who we've just been talking about, they were blessed by a gift from God. But he is the word himself. In the beginning was what? The word. The word was with God and the word was God. He is the word in the flesh, as it says in John 1.14. He came tabernacled in the flesh, but he is the very word himself. There's that piece of scripture in John, isn't there, where uh, I think it's when the, uh, the, uh, they catch the adulteress. In, in adultery and bring him bring her before Jesus and they, they try to tell him the law and he stoops down and he writes in the sand. It's very hard to distinguish exactly what that means when he does that. I like to think that, you know, sanctified opinion maybe, but I like to think that Jesus is saying, look, I wrote the law. And you're telling me and I wrote it. That's what I like to think. But he is the word. He is the word in the flesh. And they said, didn't they? No man ever spoke like this man. But in the midst of all this, Jesus says, why do you seek to kill me? Why? What a question this is. The people scoff and they deny that this is true. Who's seeking to kill you, they say. This man is mad. They accuse him of having a demon, even. But the question remains. And Jesus went around preaching that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He went around healing the sick. He drove out demons and he rose the dead from their death. <clears throat> he went around doing good to everybody. That's what it says in Acts. He went around doing good to all. He is the epitome of benevolence, goodness. He is the absolute essence of grace, mercy, and love. The question is then, why did they seek to kill him? Why was Jesus so offensive to his peers? From the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, right up until the time of Moses, the commandments, the directions, and the godly way of life was passed down from generation to generation in an oral manner, from mouth to mouth. Fathers taught their children and so on and so on to the generations. When God called Moses to rescue his people from under the iron fist of Egypt to bring them out from bondage, he called them to be his own peculiar people. He made them into a nation and he became their king. During that 40-year wandering in the wilderness, God summoned Moses to the top of Mount Sinai to give him the laws for this new nation, which he was instructed henceforth that time to commit these to writing. And he put them on uh, well, he put, initially he put the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, on two tablets of stone, which were then placed inside of the Ark of the Covenant. They were there kept for about 800 years or more before the Ark of the Covenant was lost forever. But they were kept always 
with the people of God. Ever since that time, God's word has grown until it was finished. But in that Old Testament sense, there were books on the history of Israel, there are books of wisdom, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Prophets. The Old Testament consisting of 39 books. Paul, though, writing to the uh, uh, Romans regarding the judgment of God being upon Jew and Gentile alike, states in chapter 3 that the oracles of God were committed to the Jews. Yeah? The oracles of God were committed to them. Nobody else, just them. Matthew Henry notes, Now these oracles were committed to the Jews. The Old Testament was written in their language. Moses and the prophets were of their nation. They lived among them, preached and wrote primarily to and for the Jews. They were committed to them as trustees for succeeding ages and churches. The Old Testament was deposited in their hands to be carefully preserved, pure and uncorrupt, and so transmitted down to posterity. The Jews were the Christians' library keepers and were entrusted with that sacred treasure for their own use and benefit in the first place and then for the advantage of the world. And in preserving the letter of the scripture, they were very faithful to their trust, did not lose one iota or tittle in which we are to acknowledge God's gracious care and providence. These, this Jewish nation, these people were so careful. If, if it weren't for them, we wouldn't have the book that you're holding in front of you right now. We wouldn't have it. They were so careful to keep the scriptures. So this was a, a, an exceedingly special privilege. The Jews were highly favoured. And God himself calls them a stiff-necked people, a stiff-necked small group of people. But they were called to be a holy nation before God. And Paul again similarly speaks of Israel in Romans 9, 4 and 5. And he says, to them whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Even Christ came from amidst the Jews. What a privilege they have to be the chosen nation of God at that time, to be given the oracles of God, to be committed, this Bible, these scriptures that we have before us now, we're committed to them to, 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 to write, to, to take care of them, to be stewards of them. And then the very Messiah himself comes from their midst. But very sad, isn't it? Very sad. That in spite of all these advantages, in spite of all these privileges, in rebellion and blindness, they rejected the Christ whom their own forefathers had prophesied of. And they began, continued in trusting in their own heritage, despite, the, well, because of, in their own mind, they were disciples of Moses, sons of Abraham, and in their self-righteous keeping of the law. That's what they trusted in. 
They'd, get, they'd had all this given to them. And they, they were writing and, and making sure every jot and tittle was correct. And they still missed the Christ. They still missed him. Instead, they just thought they were already there because of all the advantages that they had, all the privileges they had. See, this is the backdrop for the coming of Jesus Christ on the scene. And the attitude of the Pharisees, the attitude of the scribes and the Jewish people, well, it was one of superiority. We're higher. We're already there. We're up there with God. We're his chosen people. We're his nation. He's our king. In fact, they rejected him as being their king, and they chose a king for themselves, which caused them a whole lot of trouble in King Saul. They were God's chosen. They weren't the dogs like the Gentiles. And neither were the Pharisees sinners like the publicans and ordinary folk. That was their own opinion of themselves. See, the, the reaction to the blind man that Jesus healed in John chapter 9, verse 34, says, says it clearly. He says, they answered and said to him, talking about the blind man who they were interviewing, if you like to put it that way, or grilling. They answered him and said, you, speaking to the blind man, you were completely born in sin. And you are teaching us. And they cast him out of the synagogue. Everybody dreaded that. Every Jewish person dreaded being cast out of the synagogue. If you were cast out of the synagogue, your life was almost over. You couldn't do anything, go anywhere. You couldn't climb the social ladder. There was no advantages in education, no advantages in getting uh, jobs and things like that. If you were out of the synagogue, that was the very center of life in Jewish community. But he said, they, they pointed the finger at him and said, you, you, you are completely born in sin. Not us. You presume to teach us, the Pharisees, the scribes, God's own leaders? Just hear the arrogance in the words, can't you? And it was him that they cast out the synagogue. And Jesus said himself that he came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As he said to his brethren, as we looked at previously, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. Have you read in Mark chapter 12, or do you recall the parable of the wicked vine dressers? If you haven't read it, have a read later on, Mark chapter 12. But in verse 12, this is what we read. They sought to lay hands on him. But feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. He had spoken a parable and he had made the imagery all about the Pharisees. And they knew it. They weren't, they weren't stupid people. They heard what, they were, what Jesus was saying and they knew that he was pointing the finger at them. So what did they do? They sought to lay hands on him. Because he was preaching against them and the way that they lived. The way that they had this hypocrisy and this self-righteousness. The Lord Jesus, he was speaking to a deeply religious people. And what he did was he revealed their self-righteous hypocrisy. He brought it out into the light. He brought their falsehood 
out from the shadows into full view of everybody. So to them, this commoner, this unschooled, self-styled rabbi that they thought Jesus was, he embarrassed them. He embarrassed them and humiliated them publicly. And they were so afraid that the people would catch on. They would listen to what he was saying and they'd realize through the scriptures and what Jesus was saying, who they really were. And that all respect and all the honor that they had drummed up over time would be lost and that they would be emptied of all the power that they currently had over the people. As we've said, these people loved the honor and praise of men more than God. Then they despised him for it. They absolutely despised him for what he was doing. He caused them that he to that their teeth gnashed in deep anger. They were cut to the heart by him. They wanted rid of him. And the fact remained, this was their discussion. If we are to survive, if we are going to keep a hold of this power that we have, if we're going to keep hold of who we are, we've got to get rid of him. There's no other way. Who was it that said, was it Caiaphas who said that it's expedient for one to die on behalf of the nation and he didn't know that he was prophesying? What he was saying is if we're going to save what we are here, then it's better that one man dies than we lose all this. Now they were so offended by him because he brought them out into the light. But the reality is beyond that, that the world will always try to kill Christ. They'll always be doing it. No matter what generation we live in, no matter if it's when he was there on, on earth with the Pharisees and the religious people, whether it's after that at the time of the apostles, after that at the time of the, those that followed the apostles and so on and so on, all the way down to history until now, people and this world that we live in will always want to be rid of Christ. No ever change. So the world we live in today, according to Wikipedia, which I'm not saying is uh, the most, uh, what should we say? What's the word I'm looking for? Trustworthy. But nevertheless, it's interesting that they say that in, in 2021 or in a 2021 census in England and Wales, it was noted that 46.2 of the population of England and Wales identified as Christian, 46.2%. Around 37.2% of the population identified as irreligious, not interested in anything. And in 2014, Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams stated that the UK had become a post-Christian country. So as I said, whether these percentages are accurate or even what kind of Christianity they're referring to. It could be that they're just making a note of how many people were attendees or members of the Church of England at the time and not noting places like us here. I don't know. But needless to say, regardless of how accurate they are, we have to understand and I, that we do know that the area, uh, the era, sorry, in which we live 
Christianity appears to be in decline. People are no longer very religious. There used to be a time, even when the irreligious used to get dressed in their Sunday best and go to church and make sure their kids went as well. It was just the dumb thing. Whether or not they really believed or not, it's just, in a sense, like the, like the synagogue, you didn't want to be a social outcast. So we'll all go to church. But not today. People are no longer even religious, hardly. School assemblies used to include that, that prayer at the, in the assembly, didn't it? I remember that. And they had hymns. We had hymn books at school. Hotels and hospitals always had the Bible available. Now, I am not up in the language or the knowledge of what happens in the courts these days, but I'm, I'm sure that it still is part of a court uh, proceedings that people still lay their hands on the Bible and they swear to tell the truth. But I, my question is this, how long will even that last? Will that be removed as well? That we have to put our hand, is it going to be fair to the other religions that people just lay their hand on a Bible and swear to tell the truth? How long until that's thrown out? Truth has become subjective. Whether or whatever is true for each individual is encouraged to be accepted as their right. Whatever I believe is true. There may be in some senses uh, particularly in certain Christian denominations, still be Pharisees, if you want to term them that. But by and large, the details have changed this day that we live in. I don't think that uh, in our day, in our generation, that most people are offended at the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ because they already believe that they are accepted by God because of their heritage or, or their works as the Jews were believe in themselves, but because they're being told that there is only one way to God, which is by and through Jesus Christ. That's, that's the, the trouble of this generation. How dare we say such a thing? How dare we say that there's only one way to God? That's your truth, might not be mine. How dare we say such a thing? I believe what I believe. You've got no right to tell me that I'm wrong. It is almost as though whatever it is that we believe has some kind of inerrant power to make that belief a reality. I've, I've spoke to people on the streets and they come and say, well, I, I don't believe in God, so I'm, I'm not going to hell. I mean, that's just a ridiculous statement. I remember when I was a kid, I used to believe in Santa Claus with all my heart. I did. I even believe I saw him. I believed that I woke up and I heard his bells on the roof. But how much of my belief as a child made that true? It didn't, did it? How much of your unbelief then is going to make God any less real? It's just a silly statement. Your truth that you think is, is true, just because it's your truth, it doesn't make it true, does it? There is no one truth according to this generation. There is not one truth. It just depends on whatever's true for you. But that's not what the Bible says, is it? The Bible says differently. The Bible says there's one Lord, there's one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. But the world that we live in 
to an angry one, full of offence. Everybody's offended by anything. I think what I think, I believe what I believe, my truth is my God, and if you disagree, it's a hate crime. That's the world we live in. The details in our age differ from the details of when Jesus preached to Israel and the religious leaders of the day. But the principle is still the same. The principle is this, hatred of truth. Christ is the truth, and so people hate Christ. That's the reality. It doesn't matter what detail we're in, whether it's about this, that, or the other. It always comes down to the fact that people hate truth, and therefore people hate Christ. And the world will always want to get rid of him. It cannot stand the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he stands for. It can't stand truth. They always want him dead. But the truth again, which is in Christ alone, is this, that Jesus Christ dies, died once and once for all. He is alive and he'll never die again. They killed him once, they can't kill him again. doesn't matter what they do. It's so seething and with anger and hatred against all that is righteous, all that is good, all that is holy. And even though the world says it doesn't believe in the God of the Bible, their utter loathing of him tells us absolutely the opposite. How can you loathe? How can you despise? How can you vehemently hate something that is a figment of somebody's imagination? If somebody truly believes that what you believe about Christ is false and it's just, you've made it up because you need it, well, they're just going to think, you're pathetic, you're going to do what you want. But they get angry about it. Why do they get angry? Because they know in the deepest, darkest part of their very self that what you believe and what you're saying is true. And all they want to do is hide it in the shadows, cover it, shove it under the rug, don't think about it, I'll deal with it when it comes, all that kind of thing. Romans 1, 29 to 31 explains this so perfectly. It speaks of these people as being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy and murder and strife and deceit, evil-mindedness. It says they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, Inventors of evil things. How much are we seeing of that today? Disobedient to parents. Again, the state of our youth this day. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Like reading a newspaper. Such is the offence of Christ today that believers are losing their jobs because of the public profession of faith. Businesses are being dragged through the courts because they refuse to supply goods which promote wickedness and rebellion against God. Even teachers are being reprimanded and struck off for refusing to bow down to this gender madness. 
preferring instead to stand for the biblical teaching of God's order of creation. Men want to be women and women want to be men. Females identifying as men, vice versa. People are even identifying as animals now, can you believe? This world is nuts. It's gone mad. People literally are mad. The world is just crazy. And when Christians do stand up for Christ and for his word, the word will always, the world, sorry, will always cry out like the crowd did as Jesus stood battered and blooded before them. Crucify him. Remember the, the crowd was stirred up. Those that were just a few days earlier saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are now stirred up and they're saying, crucify him. We choose Barabbas. That's who we want. We want the murderer. We want the sinner. Because we identify with him, set him free. We'll choose the murderer rather than the Messiah. We'll choose sin over holiness any day of the week. And John 3, 19 to 20 tells us why this is. Why is this happening? It says this, this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Every single person knew, the Pharisees knew, the world knows, and you know, just the same, that if you come out into the light, everything about your darkness is going to be seen for all. That's the condemnation. They love darkness rather than light. And Christ is the light of the world, and so they hate him. The disciples uh, were said, uh, told by Jesus or asked by Jesus, he said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. <clears throat> if you were of the world, listen to that. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. You need to ponder on that. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. The question I ask myself and therefore, as a consequence of that, ask you, does the world hate me? Does the world hate you? It's going to be one or the other. It's either going to hate you or it's going to love you. If you are of this world, Jesus said it, don't shoot the messenger. Jesus said it, if you are of the world, the world would love its own. I have to ask myself, if the world loves me, why is that? See, what I'm saying, or what I'm not saying, should I say, 
is that no believer should go out purposely to alienate people. We shouldn't go out to irritate or to annoy or to anger anyone. But the more Christ-like that we become, the more the world and those of the world will begin to hate you, to hate me. The more and closer we get to be like him, the more they will hate us because they hate the Christ that's in us. It's not really you or me that they hate. It's the light of the truth of Christ that's within you that they hate, that they rail against, that they gnash their teeth at. It's him and it's his message of the gospel which shines light upon their darkness. That's what they hate. As Jesus said to his brethren, the world hates him because he testifies of it that their deeds are evil. That's the reason. Paul tells the Ephesians that all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. The way that we live our lives in Jesus Christ and the message we preach should have a similar effect as he had when he walked the earth. If we say he lives in us, he must live out of us. And if he lives out of us, his light will then shine upon the darkness of those around us. Do we have this effect on people, is the question. The people wanted to see Jesus dead because of his righteousness and his holiness revealed them for what they were. Scripture tells us that we as believers have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. Does that righteousness in us provoke the wickedness and the darkness around us? Does it provoke it? What happened to those demoniacs? As soon as Jesus walked into the room, they ran straight to him and they had to confess, you are Christ, the son of the living God. Don't torture us. Darkness cannot be around light. But such is so much of modern Christianity that it teaches that Jesus just loves everybody just the way they are. The message is that, that Jesus has a great plan for your life and that all we need to do is to accept him into our hearts. Jesus helps us to become awesome, to succeed in life, to be the best in whatever we do. And making that decision to follow Christ is just, just the best decision you could ever make. Jesus exists to make everyone happy and to find their best life now. That's a lot of modern Christian teaching. It's not Christian, but it's a lot of the modern Christian teaching so-called. This, this kind of Christianity, it permeates society. You go into a Christian bookshop and you won't find much that talks about repentance or holiness. Is this the message that got Jesus, most of the twelve, and countless faithful servants over centuries killed. Is it really going to get you killed? 
That kind of message. Jesus loves you and he just wants to give you everything that you ever want. With a nice cherry on top. That's not going to get you killed. These Christianity rock stars, they tickle ears and they never speak of repentance or bearing the cross. They never speak of losing family members because of the gospel. Never about the possibility of friends deserting you or losing your career because of righteousness. They don't preach about the hatred of the gospel because they don't preach the gospel. They preach a different Jesus. Now, none of us want enemies, really, do we? None of us desire to be victimized. None of us want to be hated or abused. But again, I say this, if we are indeed temples of the Holy Spirit, and if we are full of Christ, if we actually do speak out the real gospel to those around us, including our families, we will make enemies of some of them. Absolutely inevitable. Christ promised this. He said that the world would hate us and we would be persecuted for his name's sake. Just flick over to, to Hebrews 11. Just, just, just a couple of verses before I finish. Hebrews 11, 24 and 26. This is that great chapter of the people of faith. He says this. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather, listen to this, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, he looked to that reward. This is the fruit of being a Christian. A follower of Christ will follow in his footsteps. And again, we have to ask ourselves, am I bearing that kind of fruit? See, Christ was rejected. He was alienated, he was abused, he was mocked and scorned and hated, humiliated, falsely accused, beaten, killed. These things are promised to be a part of the life of his followers. Now, they will work out in different degrees. In every individual life, it won't be the same. But are you prepared for this, is the question. Am I prepared for this? Am I prepared to go into a foreign country knowing that I could be stoned to death for the sake of the gospel? Are we prepared to be in the place? Are we prepared to stand in that gap where we're willing to lose everything? in this world for his sake that's the question that we need to ask ourselves but you see the promise let's end with the promise shall we this is a wonderful promise as it says in matthew chapter 5 the promise is this that all who suffer persecution will have great reward in heaven blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake for their reward in heaven is great and that's where our eyes need to look not here not here whatever you have whatever you've got it's all lost Count it as lost. Keep it loosely. Because it can go from you at any second. Both your riches and your life. Our eternity. And our citizenship in heaven is what counts. It's that we need to look to. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these tremendous verses of scripture.
Thank you, Lord, for the witness of Jesus Christ who would not back down. That he is the king of righteousness. He is the word himself. And Lord, they killed him for it. Oh, but Lord, we thank you that that was only for three days. That he rose from the dead, conquered the grave, rose victorious, and it said this, I have accepted your sacrifice. And he is alive forevermore. And because of his resurrection life, we have life. Lord, I, I ask you then this morning that you cause us to look to that resurrected life. Not to this life that is temporal, not to the things of this world that are temporal. These things and this age that will pass cause us not to value that more highly than our citizenship in heaven. For Lord, when we go from this earth, whether it be whether we're old, whether we're young, whether it's through natural causes or whether it's for the sake of your gospel, we all go to that place of glory. May that be our focus. Lord, give us boldness as you gave the, the apostles and the disciples to live the lives that you've given us in the sphere of influence that you've given us, to actually do what you've called us to do, to preach the gospel, to live the gospel, and yes, to accept the promise, even the gift of suffering on behalf of your own sake. For oh Lord, we know this, great is our reward in heaven. Help us, Father, everyone, to live for you, in Jesus' name. Amen.